So my guest for today's cappuccino is Superintendent Melanie Aitken, the National Manager for Safer People for the New Zealand Police. She joined the police in 1999 and stands at not much taller than 158.5 centimetres tall. She's been an inspector, an area commander, a district commander, including a role in the West Coast. She broke her back before joining the police, breaking four vertebrae in the fall, and took up running. She since has gone on to become a champion marathon runner, as well as an amazing cross-country runner also. She basically goes through a pair of shoes every five weeks, and for those of you that are running buffs, her best time for the marathon is 2.47.42, and her best time for the 10k run is 38.54. So, without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce the New Zealand Police's answer to the pocket rocket, Superintendent Melanie Aitken. Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. So... What's the motivational poster that's in your office? Because I know you've got them everywhere. Well, you did have when you were at the West Coast anyway. Yeah, it's a little bit um, PNHQ here in that we don't have big motivational posters, but everything we do is motivational, right? So oh, there you go. Nice yeah. answer. The best, <laughs> best cop movie of all time is what, in your opinion? Best cop movie? Yeah. Hot, hot fuzz. Oh, nice. Good work. Yeah. Current, wallpaper. <laughs> Current wallpaper on your phone is what? My cat. There you go. Nothing wrong with it. Uh, I know you've got. I know you've got some because you're a runner. Um, the best scar story you've got. Oh, scar! Gosh. Um. Yes, an injury scar. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, so it's probably not a running one, but I um I broke some vertebrae in my back having a fall off one of my horses. You have the opportunity to run ten k with David. David Goggins, Mo Farah, or Paula Radcliffe, who who's it going to be and why? Paula. Yeah. Inspirational. I guess they all are, but um, the time that she set, it's uh, pretty uh, pretty amazing, and yeah, having an opportunity to run with her would be pretty pretty cool. Yeah. Um, what's been your biggest fan girl moment as a competitive runner? <laughs> um, there's a um, pretty amazing. Uh, American runner Camille Heron, and uh, last year she uh, raced at Tarawera and did the miler, and um, I did the 50k, and we both ended up winning our divisions. Nice. So I got to see her in person, <laughs> and then sort of uh, walked up and went, "Don't know what to say." <laughs> it's a bit sad, but it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. Uh, um, can you remember what your first day on the job was what? like and did anything interesting happen yeah um i'll probably go back to my first day on the job as um on station duty rather than first day on the job yeah because um we uh we had a it was sort of a defining moment we had a um suicide <clears throat> of a um a man who um, had a, a young daughter and um he had a pretty tough time and um decided that um it was all too much so it was managing um the uh, i guess the incident and then advising the seven year old um going to the school and uh, telling her what had happened to dad so yeah, what was your most challenging moment as a sergeant because you went from frontline to becoming a sergeant in like four years didn't you yep 
Yep. yep. I was still, um, I was still a, so I was road policing sergeant. So, yep. um, and I don't, I don't know. I think you just, you just go and do it. Yep. Um, it was at that point in time, there was a lot of, I mean, I guess the culture's changed a whole heap. So it was a lot about fitting in with um, the boys yeah. and not necessarily being yourself, but being somebody that you thought you had to be as a manager at the time yeah. um, versus now a leader. Yeah, not wrong. Um, what's your best war story from your time oh, in God. so far? Oh, I know you got me on the spot, right? Oh, there you go. I, I can come back to it if you want. <laughs> I, I think you'll need to because I'm. Okay. <laughs> I am. I'm gonna. I'm gonna circle it right here. We go. Here we go. There we go. All right. Um, so you fell from a horse, and you broke four vertebrae in your back. Okay. Yep. yep. Uh, yep. Obviously, I've read the stories, and you did the amazing thing of putting yourself back on the horse, and then the horse <laughs> kind of carried you home. So yeah, full credit to you. What was the rehab for that like? Because that must have been. One, both mind-numbing and also just you're lying there. You can't do anything. Yeah, so it was an interesting, um, I guess, experience. Um, so initially when I had the full, um, I was down at the local pony club and um, I was on my own and I'd gone over a jump, which didn't go so well. And my horse and I departed and um, I landed really heavily. So... I felt really, really winded to start with and didn't realise probably how um, actually that it was quite bad. So yeah. you know, the old determined mind was, well, I've got to get the horse, got to get home. So I uh, managed to get her, climb aboard, and the only thing I could do was lie across her neck. Yeah, so basically leaning across her neck, um, and she just uh, guided, guided, guided us both home. Um, got home and um, ended up, long story short, it took a week for them to actually diagnose my injury because they decided uh, not to x-ray me um, when I first went into hospital. (laughs) So um, after a week of complete agony and trying to do what I could around home, you just know when things aren't right. And um, so, so yeah, diagnosed um and by by that stage after a week i'd already sort of worked out the things i could sort of do so i wasn't lying flat on my back but um it was a good three months of um really slow but um i guess you know um positive rehab and that i didn't just sit and do nothing um and really really determined i guess to get back on the horse so to speak so that was um that was my um sort of reason well you know at the time uh, real determination to want to get well and um, yeah, get back on. And then at some stage there during your rehab, you decide to take up an activity which, and I quote, I hated running growing up. Um, so, <laughs> so what makes you turn to running? Because it's like it's not the world's easiest exercise for your back or your knees, is it? To be honest. No, well they say that, they say that, but um, yeah, I. Um, I guess I'm just not one to sit still. And so I basically came, I rehabbed back and I was able to get back to riding. um, And I just think I lost potentially a bit of nerve around the riding side of things. Um, I seem to, you know, you you pile a whole heap of money into horse riding. (laughs) (laughs) Don't always get, um, get the results you want. And partly, I mean, there's reasons around that. I guess with the running side of things, um, it's entirely about what you put into it as to what you get out. So you can't you can't buy success. You've just got to um, really work hard on it. So I started. I mean, 
you know, started doing a couple of runs, um, really just to do something more than just my horse riding, um, and had no idea how I would um, uh, compare against other people because it wasn't the thing that I really enjoyed. But I made, I guess, the mistake, if you want to call it, I um, I entered a race and um, I got placed in my first race I entered, and I thought, oh, maybe this is something I'm okay at. And I think it was that sort of um, sniff of success in a different kind of sport yeah. that um, inspired me to want to try it a bit more. And, and then you, I sort of got hooked. <laughs> you entered that run at the age of what was it, 35? I saw. Were you younger than that? Yeah. No, no, no. It was about 35. So yeah, I certainly, I certainly wasn't a runner. Um, like even going into joining the police, um, I had to work really, really hard to be able to run the 2.4k. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a case of, you know, walk, walk a lamppost, run to a lamppost, walk one, um, and um, so yeah, it wasn't in my DNA. I mean, my my days growing up, going through school, um, sports days, I'd get mum to write me notes, and I'd be um, back home horse riding and not doing the, the sports stuff. <laughs> um, what were your first couple of competitive runs like? Were they? Um, after you obviously got that first place, were you like, oh, hey, I'm in to win here? Or was it, I'll just go along and see how I get on? Um, I think I think there was that sort of, oh, you know, this, I might be all right at this. So the first one, you know, I got placed. Um, I can't recall um, sort of what races came after that, but I know within my first, my first year I did, you know, a couple of half marathons and then went into doing a marathon and um, sort of got placed in each of those. So... It's sort of just um, snowballed, really. Um, yeah. Mad, madness. Um, you, <laughs> you clock up on average, uh, and I've seen you say this multiple times, about 140 to about 180 k's a week. Is that right? Yeah. So at the moment, I'm sitting around 150, um, and I have been consistently for, uh, you know, pre-COVID, actually probably all this year, um, right. average of 150 a week. Yep. So how many Ks did you do this morning? Uh, so this is my uh, my recovery week. So uh, I only did 16, 16 this morning. Good Lord. <laughs> right, okay. So what's your average training week look like when you're in the middle of the peak season? How many, how many yep. Ks are you doing? So, so the funny thing is I don't really have a peak season um, yep. because I – I don't stick to just one running discipline. So I like doing trails, roads, um, short distance, long distance, ultras. So generally my, my running remains the same sort of, you know, week in, week out. Um, but it's, it's a, um, I run every day, so I never have a day off running. Uh, while I'll have a recovery day or recovery week, um, it still will consist of like a recovery day would be a minimum of six kilometres, um, probably around 10k. Um, every every session that I do has a purpose, so um, it's not about we call it junk miles. So you don't run junk miles. Everything yeah. you, you you run to do um, has a reason. So whether it's a speed session, it's a long slow day of of running to get your endurance up. Um, so yeah, there's a real mix. And um, probably about three days of the week, I'll have a double run day. So. My main training will be early morning, so I always run first thing in the morning, and then there'll just be a recovery run at night, which is around about the six or eight k, just to stretch the legs. Right. Yeah. Okay. You can do yoga instead. I'm just saying. Um, runners <laughs> are meticulous planners, like you guys in 
and I know this because I've read Arthur Lydian's book and a few others as well, runners tend to be really, really meticulous planners with how they plan their season and plan their training and everything else. At the beginning of the year, do you sit there and go, this event, this event, this event, and I'll drop down here and then do this or not? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, obviously, this year got a little bit messed up with um, all the events I had planned um, getting yeah. cancelled, but, you know, that it is what it is. Um, so, and um, those that know me for my running um, know that I tend to race a whole heap compared to probably what would be um, described as what is ideal. So I incorporate a lot of um, races just into my training. So that way I'm prepared when there is a sort of a peak race um, with having done all the prep um, with my other races. So, you know, because it's not just the the art of the running a race, it's the the nerves and the build-up going into it. And if you can manage all that by practising it with training races, then when it comes to your, your main one, um, sort of you've done all that stuff so you can just really focus on the running element. Well, that's that's how I see it anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Lots of runners say that it's um, for their mm. mental health as much as it is their physical health, right? And I know for you it is. Which, yeah. Which out of the two is the more important for you when you run? Um, I don't think you can divide them up, but in saying that, um, absolutely my mental health. Um, prime example, I got to work this morning. One of my team said, you didn't really run in that rain this morning, did you? And she further said, are there days that you wake up and go, oh, I just don't want to run? And I can genuinely say there's not. And I, it's because of the feelings I get uh, doing the run and then post-run. Um, you just, like for me, having not been able to run for my mental health would be really, really difficult. Yeah. Um, I do all my thinking time when I'm out running, you know, early morning in the dark, solving all the world's problems <laughs> and then finding that I haven't solved the damn thing. But you know, like it's just, a, it is a bit of, I guess, selfishness, but it's a bit of me time. Yeah. And um, and for me, um, it works. So, yeah. That's all good. Now, somewhere with all this running going on and you um, taking up the races and everything else, you become the area commander for the West Coast. What was that like? Because let, let's be honest, no disrespect <laughs> to you, and I say this one mighty mouse to another, um, You, even though you're a Dunedin girl, it's still a massive role. And there's lots of sort of West Coast st stereotypes, isn't there? So how, how, did yeah. you, how did you find that? Yeah, uh, look, it was really interesting, um, particularly because when I first went there, it was for a short-term relieving opportunity. So, you know, great to have an opportunity. Um, I had actually never been to the West Coast. So yeah. um, I think I went in a little bit blind and um, maybe uneducated as to what the West Coast is all about in terms of the people and the lifestyle and the culture. But to be honest, um, it was the most amazing experience. Um, the relieving obviously led to me going, yeah, I think this is a great opportunity to apply for the position. Um, amazing, amazing people on the West Coast. Um, really, really passionate. Um, and not just the police, but the, the community. Yeah. Um, I think the, the challenges of being an area commander in a place like that are unique. Um, in that you're really having to think differently to be able to get things done. Um, and you're relying on people wearing uh, multiple hats because 
there just isn't the people otherwise you know so it was it was such a great experience um you are always in the spotlight though yeah so you never have um uh you can never just hide away because you're either the runner or you're the west coast cop or you're a bit of both right yeah. so yeah yeah, yeah. And, and funny when I was researching the interviews, that's where most of your stuff comes through. It's like Dunedin runner, West Coast runner, blah blah blah. I um, know. <laughs> you you del you delivered a proposal to the staff in the community that was to shake up the coast policing structure when you when you got there. Um, yeah. And you were the public face of that. What was that like? Because one, most people hate public speaking to start off with. Two, <laughs> you've just sort of got this like um, area commander's role. And then yeah. the other thing is that most people actually hate being the centre of attention at meetings too. And you're, you're copping flack as well because obviously the community is worried about what's going on with their policing because, as Robert Peel said, the police are the people and the people are the police. So um, yeah. how did you handle all of that? <laughs> well, you know, it's that whole uh, I look back and I reflect on it and go, did I really put myself in that position? Because I think you just, you just do it at the time. You're not really... Um, you're always thinking about you know your actions and and how you're managing it but you it's only when you post it you look back and go how did how did i do that um and i again i think going in with a little bit of ignorance and just dealing with what i had i mean i went in saying yeah there were some opportunities to do some things differently um but it was also about taking the time to understand the community um and then to be able to uh, deliver or at least have them come on board to understand why we were making some changes. Um, I think there's nothing worse than somebody coming in cold from outside uh, doing their their work and then leaving because it doesn't, you know, it sort of um, can impact on sort of the integrity of, of the reason. So, you know, like I was prepared to stay there and actually see it out as to what I was wanting to deliver which um, I think, you know, worked in favour of um, the community coming on board with me. The police on the West Coast, um, <laughs> I rate them. They're, just, yeah. it, they're true professionals, but they still care about their people. And, um, you know, they accepted me as well, given it was a bit of a hard task to go in yeah. and, and do. So, yeah. yeah. If I said to Superintendent Aitken, who's your favourite leader and why, what would you say? Oh gosh, I don't. I don't know. I could put. Um, I could. I could single one person out. Yeah. I think you know, like I. Um, I have a number of people that have had an impact on me and my career, and um, I guess now the person that I am, and so um, I think it's important that you can be yourself and and feel safe to be able to do that. I probably yeah. As I say, there's probably a, a number of people that have helped shape who I am today, so, yeah. That's all right. Uh, so then somewhere along the line, after that's finished, you become the National Manager for Safer People, which when I spoke to somebody outside the job, they said, that, did you ever watch Fraggle Rock? That sounds like those little miners that go around making sure everybody's safe. I'm not, not quite, but oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I quite like that, though. That's good. Um, <laughs> for those outside the police, can you explain what Safer People is about? Sure thing. So it's an, it's good because um, so I again I, I think I make a, a bit of a habit of this. I sort of go into roles a little bit blind and then just you know make things happen. So um, so safer people is um, I get so we're made up of five work streams. It's about um, our health and safety, our wellness of our people within uh, New Zealand Police. 
So um, we have, yeah, we've got five work streams. We look after the physical, the mental, the return to work um, aspect of policing, um, yeah, and health and safety and, and uh, well-being and medical. So it's the holistic approach to ensuring our people are safe and well, um, both physically and mentally in the job. And look, let's be honest, when you and I joined, care and self-care of staff, uh, while it had the best intentions, it probably wasn't the best care or the best treatment for our staff. How has it changed since you joined? Yeah, look, it's changed a whole heap. Um, you know, I I know that New Zealand Police have always, we've had a wellness service, so that's always been there, yep. um, but very much a response-based um, wellness service up until more recently in that if something happened then we would provide some support to people. Um, what we've done um, in the last 18-20 uh, months is really uh, driven the prevention focus for um, you know proactive prevention for our people in terms of their well-being and their safety so it's about ensuring that um, it's not the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff but yeah. the one at the top uh, that we're actually providing, um, you know, resilience, providing um, education, support to um, really stop them falling over. Mindful that, you know, there's always going to be a need to provide that response because of the nature of the work we do. Yeah, um, yeah you can't. Well, what can. do you think, and only in your opinion, but what do you think service people have got such a problem with is, you know, there's lots of terms for it, the head shed, you know, the, the shrinks, the, the, the uh, people in the coats, that type of stuff when it comes to their mental health. Why do you think we've got such a major issue with it? I mean, there's, there's probably two parts to that. You know, I mean, we, um, I mean, historically, oh, we, we deal with, we deal with uh, mental health in our community. So as police responders, we go and we deal with people that have mental health issues. So then from a, a police perspective, you know, we've had this culture until recently of people going, well, I'm not, I don't want to be, you know, I'm not that kind of person. Um, I'm okay. Um, I need to be tough. I I can't be sharing how I'm really feeling. Um, And, you know, like, I mean, our our big line under our strategy is it's okay to not be okay. And um, that for me is the big thing about getting people to accept that uh, mental injury is no different than physical injury. You just can't see it. Um, And actually... We treat physical injuries and we're called to talk about it. So actually we now need to be cool about talking about mental injury as well. Yeah, and and let's be honest, we've had an appalling rate of mental health issues, uh, health issues, uh, everything from uh, trauma, job-related stuff, uh, physical injuries from work to just accidents at home. Are we really that bad compared to other professions with like injuries and mental health? Do we lead the stats as you look at them or not? Uh, for our police, our police people, you mean? Yeah. No, 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 not at all. Like, I think we do safety really well. Yeah. Um, I, actually, no, I don't think. I know we do, and yeah. I know we, we lead it across many organisations. Um, we have a very, um, you know, a very good culture around safety. Um, we really just need to probably um, grow in that space of the well-being more so than we already are. But we're on a, I call it, and I know people don't like the phrase, we're on a journey, but I think, you know, um, we are. And um, more and more people are starting to get that, which is really cool. And we're also, to be fair, we're also being acknowledged as one of the world's better uh, proactive police forces because I've had a couple of contacts say, hey, look, how can I get hold of 
the people that are doing this. So that's full kudos to you. Um, the, safer, yeah. the safer people role is a massive challenge for all of us to get it right and ensure that we're all a lot safer. What's been the biggest challenge for you so far as the leader of the safer people? Uh, I guess I guess uh, I have a personal challenge, and then there's the organisational challenge. So, coming into this role of um, of leading safer people, there's been this um, you know real sort of health and safety. It's compliance focus. It's tick boxy, you know, and actually. And I probably came into it with a little bit of that mindset, being an operational cop, not really truly understanding what health and safety is about. Yep. So, um, uh, so for me, it was actually understanding that, and then realizing across our organisation, yes, we do safety really well, but do we do we integrate it into we do it because it's the right thing to do? Do we do safety like that, or do we do it still because it's compliance driven? And so the challenge for our team and our organisation is to actually do safety because it's the right thing to do because we want to get our people home safe at the yeah. end of the day um, so yeah so that's the challenge but it's um, it's a good one it's a really good one um, why is it so important that we get it right the first time um, with our staff because do you worry that if we don't get it right the first time a lot of us and we all know hard-nosed cops will turn around and say, oh, this is just garbage. I'm not interested. I'm just going to get on with my job. And those will be the cops, as you and I both know, that will fall over later on in their career because things mount up on them. So is there immense pressure on you to get it right and get it right first time? Well, look, I probably put the pressure on myself and our team that we want to get it right and get it right the first time. Um, but we want to be really genuine about how we do it. So we know that, you know, change takes time. And so we're not going to make everybody everybody's mindset change overnight. So it's about sort of getting people on board to understand. I think the other thing is that uh, we, you know, we talk about lessons learned in police, but we need to be really genuine about um, when somebody does screw up or, you know, make an error, yeah. that actually we, we turn it around to the, we learn from it and we don't hang them out to dry, but we actually use it as a learning opportunity. So whether that's in the safety space, in the wellbeing space, you know, doing something that causes an incident or near miss and actually going, right, let's actually um, turn this into a positive. And so we need more and more of that to happen. <clears throat> and we need people to trust that if they're going to put their hand up and say they, they screwed up, that actually that's okay because yeah. we need to learn as an organisation. So, yeah, challenge. Yeah, because there was a lot, I think there was lots of people when the Wellness Hub first came out we started talking safer people. They, I think they, a lot of guys and girls thought that they were going to sort of be guided into a room with scented candles and that type of stuff. <laughs> it was, wasn't quite that and way. Weird, so that, weird, music, weird music and yeah, stuff. Yeah, like yeah dolphins yeah. in the background. Um, now, yeah, I'm, nah. I'm going back to running because I've got lots of requests from some people that I told who was going to be on the podcast. <laughs> so, oh, they said, okay, so you average 100, like you said, you average about 140 k's a week. How yeah. detailed is your training plan and who do you go to for advice? Yep. So um, about four, three, three and a half years ago, um, I signed up with a coach. So, um, and that has, I guess, changed my life in respect of um, I don't necessarily worry about what I need to do because he sets my training schedule for me. Yeah. Um, and it's a, quite a unique relationship. Um, I think we both... Um, uh, have the same sort of mindset we're quite driven and um 
he knows that if he sets me whatever for the week, I'm probably just going to add another couple of Ks on. So right. um, <laughs> um, all, of our, all of our training is um, online. Um, we can go into quite deep analysis of how I'm tracking. And so it takes, I guess, the worry out of it for me as to am I, um, am I on track to what I need to achieve? And, um, yeah, he does all the hard work, so it works pretty well. So um, now one of the questions I had was after somebody said, oh, yeah, she's the short, speedy one. I'm like, yeah, she is the short, speedy one. So take I'm not as short as you think I am, though, no, right? No, 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 exactly. No, and I mentioned that in the intro as well, that you were a centimetre taller than I thought you were. Um, yeah. You know a centimetre is a lot when you're, like, short. Uh, look, I you know what, that. Yeah, I do, yeah. And if you're at the finish line, how much is that? Anyway. Um, <laughs> When you joined the police, what was the thing that you couldn't do? Because everybody's got something that they really struggle with. Was it was it for you the run, or was it the the wall, or no? So really interesting. Um, so so before I so when I decided I wanted to join, which was actually when I was quite young, but um, when I was training for it, um, I figured that the wall would be difficult. So my dad um, he built a uh, two meter wall, which I did, we got the measurements wrong because it's not actually two meters, uh, but he built oh well. me a two meter wall in his shed, yeah. and um, I just uh, practiced religiously being able to get over that. So that was kind of cool. Um, what I actually struggled on when I went into doing the um, the testing was the grip strength because I've got oh, yeah. little hands, okay, yeah. and um, you know it hasn't actually hasn't really impacted on me. So uh, uh, well done, yeah. that's all good. Um, where where do you go if somebody says to you? Oh, I'd like to be able to be a recreational runner, but I'm useless at running. And you've said yep. before that you ran lamppost to lamppost. And when I started my station duty, there was a lady called Sandy Barwick who we used to very often catch. And I remember talking to her about it and she said, that's the way I started. And she said, even now when she was competing, she would go just one more lamppost, just one more lamppost. Yeah. What's the yeah. best place for somebody to start that has never ever run any more than three or 400 meters? Yep. So um, I guess there's a couple of options. Um, every uh, every town city has running clubs, yeah. and it's actually probably your best motivation and guidance to um, sort of help you start. Um, short of you can know, anywhere online, you can get training programs um, to help you. But um, if you're really in that um, early start and not knowing what to do having support around you to take you on group runs um, is probably the best way to get into it. Um, you know, if you're looking at wanting to join the police, we have um, boot camps for people that are wanting to um, join up and really getting people sort of into knowing what they need to do in terms of running. Um, but yeah, definitely um, I would, you know, say running club. Um, and I mean, they're easy to find online as to your local running club um, to, to get you started. Yeah. Are you still going through a pair of shoes every five weeks? When you run? Oh, at least, yeah. Yeah, oh, I hope, I hope yeah, you... yeah. It's it's like my jewellery, right? Yeah. But I, I have a running I have a running room. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, good work. Yeah, yeah. no worries. Um, one from uh, a Toronto police officer called the Coffee Cop, who I know you sometimes follow as well. Who she's an <laughs> avid runner. She said, "Ask Mel what's the best way to improve your time." Oh. <laughs> uh, just run faster, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, like I think, you know, like if you've got a, if you've got a running um, plan, um, you need to incorporate speed sessions in your running. 
So it, it, running fast won't just happen without you doing something different. If you keep doing the same run at the same pace every day, you're not going to get gains. So you really do need to mix it up. Um, and that's where a coach can help you with um, actually getting your speed up. Yeah. Yeah. How, do you, how do you stay injury free? Because the mileage or the kilometres that you're doing are massive. Yeah. Um, do you, like, and I, when I... When I used to run, uh, I used to get stress fractures very often and that type of stuff, yeah. particularly in yeah. my feet. So how do you stay injury-free with all the miles you're doing? Yeah, um, so so I have, have had a couple of stress fractures in the one, one foot, um, but other than that, I am kind of lucky. Um, I People probably don't want to hear this, particularly good runners, because I do everything that you shouldn't do um, or sorry, I don't do anything that you should do. So I don't stretch. I don't do weights. Um, I don't go to the gym. Uh, I don't do any recovery stuff. Um, I just run <laughs> a bit like Forrest Gump. You know, uh, the, one, the one thing I do do is I make sure I've got a really good diet. So I'm really strict. When I say strict on my diet, I like to eat really healthy, um, you know, plant-based. Um, and yeah, I'm really careful about what I put in. Um, but other than that, um, yeah, I'm yeah. probably just a little bit lucky. Yeah. Are you worried? I mean, I love David Goggins. I think he's exceptional. He's a bit out there, but he's pretty cool. Um, he got to that stage after he was doing all of his runs and everything else where he wasn't stretching, and he just basically said, look, I just became like a, a petrified piece of wood. I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything. Are you worried <laughs> if you did start stretching, it might affect your running somehow? Or Yeah, it's a little bit of the... Uh, don't fix what ain't broke yeah. and um, you know like um, I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest to everybody don't stretch and don't do this and don't do that but I think that what's important is everybody has an opinion yeah. and you're better to actually yeah. do what works for you um, and I think you know um, yeah you go online and everybody if you ask something on a, in a running forum everybody will give you their two cents worth but actually um, it's your body and so yeah. you just got to you got to do a bit of trial and error and see what works for you. So um, it works for me. <laughs> yeah, that's all good. That's all good. All right. So two more questions. Uh, next one is, what do you hope uh, to achieve in the next, and I know that you won't be in the role probably for the next 10, 15 years, but how do you see safer people being in the next five to 10 years? So if they said to you, you've got to leave the position in another four years. What would you want your legacy to be at the safer people within the police? Really that it's not a, it's not an add on to what we do. So I guess if we um, had the best case scenario, you wouldn't actually have safer people as a group because yep. everybody embraced safety and wellbeing to the point where we didn't need to make it a separate team to help drive it. Um, but ultimately, you know, building on the journey that we've started, it would be really about having um, everybody in that really safe position of being able to talk about mental health, um, to be able to actually get, um, you know, we would have treatments and options for people outside of the standard things that we currently deliver to ensure that, you know, because everyone's unique. So, um, and we don't have to always go with what traditional approaches we've once had to treat people. Yeah. So um, I guess, you know, having the freedom to be able to um, opt for all these different things that are going to keep our people safe and well. And I think, you know, like there's appetite for that yeah. already. 
So, um, yeah, I think there's there's huge opportunity going forward for safer people in New Zealand, please. Yeah. All right. So last question for you, and I know you know what it is. So you are lying there in your uh, 1.58.5 centimetre coffin. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, and you can hear the service outside. What would you want people to say about Mel when she's no longer here? And I'm guessing it's not going to be, and I quote again, your line that you said on TV3 uh, when, the, when the reporter said to you, well, you're a bit of a speedster, and you said, oh, yeah, for an old girl, I'm not too bad, am I? Um, so, <laughs> Did I say that? <laughs> yeah, at the ripe old age of about 38. Yeah, anyway, um, what, what would you want people to say about you? Oh, look, I, you know, like pretty lighthearted. Um, but, you know, she's a pretty good chick. Um, I cared for people because um, I do, you know, I'd like to think that people saw that, um, you know, I have empathy and I care, but I care too much. Um, and that, you know, I was an okay runner. Um, and that maybe I inspired some people to um, get off the couch and do some stuff. So Beautiful. that'd be kind of cool. Awesome. And that's it. Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss his next podcast.